It really doesn't matter what highway it is that you're driving along, just about anywhere on San Diego. Eventually, what you're going to see as you look to the side are all of the signs. The big heavy machinery, the equipment that carves and cuts into the hillsides, the mountainsides, the piles of dirt, the, the, the normal natural landscape, the rocks spilling down the mountainside, replaced by smooth dirt, and polka-dotted stakes with various colors of ribbon marking the area out, and future plots that are, are leveled and made flat. All of the signs are there, and you know exactly what is, what is going on. They're clearing the way for either future housing or an apartment complex, or some sort of commercial development. We're accustomed to seeing that, and we know exactly why that's important to do that preliminary work before building. Because you can't very well pour a foundation on uneven earth. Not unless you expect to have a crack in that foundation very shortly after pouring it. And if you refuse, if you continue to proceed without leveling the earth before pouring it and you build on top of that, inevitably, eventually, the walls and the roof of any structure are going to crack as well and the whole structure itself will be unstable. The same with whether or not it's a, a parking lot, a, a driveway, streets, or even landscaping. If, if the grading isn't proper, if the, the level isn't correct so that the water drains, then it pools all in one place. So all of this preliminary work is essential before any of the building projects can even get started. And what is true when you look to those big endeavors on the side of the highway is also true and reflective of the building project that God is doing and continues to do in each one of our hearts as well. See, before anything can be built up and we can be shaped and, and formed, there is that ongoing need to, to make ready before building goes on. I had a, a picture that I still recall from my childhood. I'm not sure if it was really intended to to be a gift for me or more for my parents, but it was a hand-stitched image of a red-headed little boy wearing overalls with his head down and a slingshot sticking out of his back pocket, implying that he must have just gotten in trouble for something. And the caption accompanying that picture said, Please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. And what was true for me as a child is every bit as much true for me as an adult and true for you as well. God continues to shape and build and work in us, not talking about salvation, a done deal, but rather sanctification or simply Christian living is what we mean when we use that word. God is constantly needing to do the preparing work to be ready to build and if we're going to understand and appreciate, uh, uh, as we continue through this series of humble expectations, why it's necessary for him to humble me to do that work, we have to recall what set the tone for this series last week. That Jesus first humbled himself. And why was that necessary? Why is that essential? Because it is the only hope for hell-bound sinners to have a relationship with a holy God. Jesus had to humble himself so that we would have any hope whatsoever. And last Sunday we were reminded, and every Sunday really reminded, that Jesus did just that. 
He left the holiness of heaven. He humbled himself to experience childbirth on on the end of the child being born into this world. And his life as he grew up from childhood into adulthood was anything but a charmed life. And he lessened himself, he humbled himself to endure suffering and punishment for crimes that he never even committed. Completely innocent of ever doing anything wrong in his life. Ultimately fulfilled in that act of humility to suffer the death of of crucifixion reserved for condemned, convicted criminals. Yes, Jesus humbled himself for all people. But there's more to the story. Though Jesus humbled himself for all people, not everybody will benefit from it. And that's why we shift to today's focus. Jesus has done all the work necessary, but just as essential for Jesus to humble himself is the need for me to be humbled. For me to recognize everything that is clouding, everything that is getting in the way, all of the heavy machinery that must carry out the work of what we really call repentance in my life. In its simplest sense, simply means turning around. We're going one direction and, and we turn around the other direction. And that was the life, the, the ministry that John the Baptist in our gospel was called to. A life of preparing, doing the preliminary work. He was the, the heavy machinery to bulldoze and pave and smooth and straighten to make ready a fallen sinful world to see the joy of its salvation in Jesus. And although that, that repentance in a, a big, wide sense can simply mean turning around, kind of the way that if, if you were driving down a road and, and you saw a sign that said, road ends ahead or, or bridge out, you'd do the smart thing and you would turn around. In one sense, that's what repentance is. But we can also kind of break it down into to a number of steps that are involved in that process of repentance as well. And the first step is to, to recognize the issue is me. The issue is, is my heart. The problem is, is what's inside me, not what's outside there. That's really the, the first step in repentance is realizing that, that my heart is deficient. That this is not going to do the job. And, and when you have an item, when you have uh, ordered something and you realize that, that it doesn't work properly, it's not a matter of troubleshooting. It's not a matter of going back to the instructions to make sure that, that you built it or assembled it correctly. It's not about kicking it a couple times or shaking it till it works or taking it apart and cleaning it. If it doesn't work, it's not going to work. You see, our heart is not just something that contributes to the problem. Our heart is the problem. And so that first step of repentance is acknowledging that. It's confessing and owning up to the problems in this world are caused by this right here, me. And confessing that in repentance. Now sometimes when we, we move to the, to the next step, some will jump right to that turning around that we talked about. I realize that I've, I've done the wrong thing, that I'm going the wrong way, and so repentance is turning around. But there's really kind of a transition that happens between there leading from that acknowledgement or confession of my sin to the turning around. And that transition is what we call contrition. What is contrition? Well, simply put, it's sorrow over sin. But there's a difference between somebody being aware of sin or doing something wrong 
and feeling contrite or experiencing contrition or sorrow over that. A hardened criminal can find himself in court and plead guilty. He knows he committed the crime. Does that mean he's sorry for it? That there's any remorse for it? Not necessarily. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to get off of the crime he's been accused of. He's owning up to it. But that doesn't mean that he's sorry or that he's experienced contrition. But for genuine repentance to produce genuine fruits of repentance, it must be born out of the the soil of contrition. So what does contrition look like in our lives? Well, there's, there's some reflection questions, I suppose, we can ask to help us determine or gauge our level of contrition or whether or not we're sorry for our sin at all. And the first question might be simply this, when you are faced with the reality of something wrong that you have done, somebody else points it out, or you got busted, you got caught, here's the question to ask yourself. Are you sorry for what you did? Or are you just sorry that you got caught? One is contrition, the other isn't. So that's one question you can ask yourself. Another, when you recognize you've done something wrong and you do, you do extend an apology to somebody else, does your apology sound like this? I am sorry that you were offended by what I did. I'm sorry that you got angry from what I did. Which is not really an apology. Or do you say, I'm sorry for how my actions hurt you or affected you. I'm sorry for the words that I spoke to you. Please forgive me. One is contrition, the other is not. And maybe another, another thought to consider. Have I long ago become so comfortable with the fact that it's impossible for me to be perfect or holy that I at this point have no desire to even strive to live the holy life that God has called me to? Because if we have become comfortable with our inability to live holy lives, then we'd have to dismiss and disregard an awful lot of what Paul encourages us to in the New Testament when it comes to holy living. Have I just given up on that and embraced and accepted that I'm a fallen sinner and I have no desire to even live the holy life that we saw encouraged in our second reading for today? See, here's the thing, as as sin progresses in our lives, if we allow it to germinate and fester, rather than confessing it contritely, with with contrition, recognizing the the sorrow associated with it, if that doesn't happen, sin can, can get really nasty. And here's how that progression can work over time. So you sin the first time. You feel guilt. You feel shame over that sin. That's contrition. You commit the same sin a few more times after that. But now, now you're complacent. You kind of know it's, it's wrong and you shouldn't do it, but it surely doesn't bother you as much as it did initially. You're just kind of complacent about it. And then, from there, the next shift is you shift from complacency to you are now complicit. You are totally comfortable. You are open. You have no problem whatsoever engaging in this sin or committing this sin. Not seeing any problem whatsoever with it. 
And then from there, if that sin is allowed to fester and germinate, it's going to go from being complicit to actually commending that sin when you see it in others or celebrating it when you see it in your own life. And actually, Paul addresses this very thing. He, he writes about this in, in two different instances in his letter to the Philippians and to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, the last verse of the chapter, he says in verse 32, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, that may not have happened overnight. That very well may be a reference to, to some who at one time were believers, but as sin germinated and allowed to, to fester in their lives, now they are approving of that very sin that they one time knew was an affront to God. Paul writes to the Philippians a, a very similar warning in chapter 3, verse, verse 18. He says, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ... Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. They celebrate, they commend the very shameful sins that God denounces. So that is what happens when, when repentance fails to not only confess sin, but, but contrition is no longer there and it is allowed to go unchecked. It, it starts with, with contrition, but then turns and shifts to complacency, and then I'm complicit, and then I commend that sin. But when we take to heart this call to repentance, and we recognize not only the need to confess that sin, but to feel genuine sorrow over it, knowing that it is an affront to a holy, righteous God, and we are then ready to turn away from that sin, that part of repentance, then we're really getting into what was described in our gospel today, the picture that Luke quoted from the prophet Isaiah. He said in chapter 3, beginning with verse, the last part of verse 4, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. Which is... Which is John the Baptist's way of saying, when your pride is elevated and piled up, that needs to be cleared out of the way. When you are convinced that, that your crooked path isn't such a bad alternative to God's way of holiness, repent of that. When you default to your blame game, uh, assuming that, that the problems in this world and in your own life are, are blamed on everybody else and everybody else's fault, Repentance means paving the way, clearing all of that debris and that garbage of sin out of your life. And when that happens, and only when that happens, are we ready for the last and most important step in repentance. It's not just turning away from sin, but it's turning to Jesus for forgiveness. Luke actually even set the tone in this section of his gospel. If you look before he quoted Isaiah, he described the ministry of John the Baptist in verse 3 saying, he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the purpose of repentance. 
God's design and God's desire is never that you, his people, would wallow around in guilt and shame with your heads hung low every day of your life here on earth. But that for a time when that has served its purpose and contrition was genuinely wrought, we would turn from that sin in joy to the one who humbled himself to rescue and redeem us from that muck of our own sin. That's God's desire for all people, that we would repent for the forgiveness of sins so that we could see what he actually has earned for us. And, and his desire is, is not just for you, but as the prophet Isaiah summarized John's ministry in the last verse, verse 6, his desire is that all mankind will see God's salvation. That everybody would see that in Jesus they have a Savior from sin. Think of it this way. Here's why repentance is so essential if we and if others are to see their salvation. Think of a time maybe you arrived after the movie started at the movie theater. You got your, your popcorn, your drink, your candy. You know the movie already started. You come in, it's dark, you're trying to see where an open seat is. You find a spot, but you know it's going to involve climbing over somebody to get to your seat. So as you're doing that, you are focusing very intently, very deliberately on not spilling your pop, your soda in somebody's lap, not spilling your popcorn all over them. So as you are focused on trying to get around them without embarrassing yourself, you have no clue what's going on in the movie. But it isn't just you. Anybody whose view you are obstructing at that time as you are crawling over them is also unable to see what is on the screen. Do you see the danger of remaining impenitent? If repentance remains, not only are we in danger of not seeing what Jesus has done for us, but it's very possible that we are obstructing the view of others from seeing their salvation as well. If they look to us and see nothing but hypocrites who claim to belong to Jesus, but embrace and even celebrate various sins, we may very well be the obstruction that is keeping them from seeing their salvation in Jesus. So it's essential that we embrace that, that Jesus calls us to a life of humility, a life of repentance, which is to clear everything out of the way, to confess that my heart is the issue, to grieve that sin, to turn from that sin, and to turn to Jesus with the absolute assurance that he humbled himself to forgive us, to know that, that repentance clears the way for us to see salvation. That repentance allows that star of Bethlehem to shine brightly in the manger and to see the salvation who was born to redeem and rescue mankind, you and me. To repent is to, to clear everything so that not only we, but, but all, as Isaiah says, would see their salvation in Jesus. So, dear friends, we are called to a life of repentance and an ongoing basis to do the preliminary work to pave the way to be humbled. Rejoice that, that God calls you to be humbled, that he humbles you so that you can truly embrace the significance of a Savior who humbled himself for you. Amen.